about you, but in the quiet of this uh, sanctuary, in those moments right after you just said, thanks be to God, I think I could hear some of you whispering, that's impossible. I know because I've whispered it too, sometimes said it out loud when I've read this text and others like it in the Sermon on the Mount. Peter Singer once said, to, to turn the other cheek is to teach would-be cheats that cheating pays. Great theologian Charles Barclay said, people always say, turn the other cheek. If you turn the other cheek, I'm going to hit you in the other cheek. And poet Maya Angelou said, if somebody is trying to take your head off with a baseball bat, I don't know how long you're supposed to stand there and turn the other cheek so he or she can get a better angle at taking your head off. Seems uh, everyone's in agreement. Impossible. Foolhardy, even. Naive. Looked at in a certain way, these words from Matthew's Gospel seem outlandish, uh, cartoonish, laughable, easy to make fun of, as you heard, because of their absolute strangeness. This is simply not the way the world works, and we can all agree on that. This is not the way the world works. Which is, of course, precisely the point. This is not the way that the world works. But it is the way God works. And in the end, this text is less about us than it is about the God who created us and claims us and is seeking to form us into an exhibition of the kingdom of heaven to all the world. I would like to, pro to propose that we consider this text from the end back to the beginning. It's so easy for us to get hung up on the first part of the text, those examples that Jesus gives, that we fail to pay attention to the latter part of the text, which serves as the root of all of those examples. The other day, I was, as you heard me saying to the children, I was caught out in a sudden rain shower. It was unexpected and very needed, I might add, a momentary relief from the oppressive heat. I didn't mind being out in it. I didn't mind being trapped in it. I didn't mind coming in soaking wet to the grocery store. And somewhere along the way, I thought about this text, because that's one of the examples Jesus gives, you know. God sends rain on the just and on the unjust, on the good and on the evil. God doesn't try to determine, as you heard me suggest to the children, who is worthy and who is unworthy of rain. Everyone gets the benefit of the shower, the murderer and the missionary, the greedy and the generous, the foolish and the faithful. Just because you are alive and breathing in the 
God-created and God-loved world, you are the beneficiary of this grace. Now, of course, Jesus is not suggesting in a kind of wooden, literalistic fashion that God has a faucet up in the sky turning it on and off. It's a metaphor, a metaphor for God's love, God's grace. God loves all indiscriminately. In this way, God is different from the world. This is how God is holy, set apart. We tend to love only those who love us back. We tend to give, expecting something in return. We are prone to retaliation. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we are taught from a young age to hate our enemies. Yes, this is the way of the world. However, this is a sermon directed not to the world but to the church. Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples, those whom he has called out of the world. These are the ones who have sensed the grace of God flowing through Jesus and who are following him in order to have that grace transform them and shape them into a reflection of the God they love. I think we get hung up on this text because we skip very important step in reading it. Christ is not challenging the church here as much as he is pronouncing a blessing upon it. You are the beloved of God, the God who makes the rain to fall on the good and on the evil and causes the sun to shine on the righteous and unrighteous alike. This is who you are. This is the God to whom you belong. Now, be who you are. Walk by the light of this identity. Before we can walk in this way, we have to accept this identity. And I think David Brooks, in the book that we've been using these past several weeks, gets at the root of this phenomenon when he writes of a Philip Randolph that, quote, his dignity, his dignity, meant that it was impossible to humiliate him. His reactions and internal states were determined by himself, not by the racism or by the adulation that later surrounded him. I believe that for us as followers of Christ, our reactions and our internal states are always determined by the grace of God poured out upon us. This grace, unearned, unbounded, is the center of our reality. Like the rain that falls from the sky, these waters of baptism confer upon us this identity, this center. And now we're prepared to go back to the beginning of the text. What does it look like out in the world when we are focused on this center? When we assume the posture of the beloved children of God? What does that look like concretely out in the world? To be the children of a God who loves without distinction. 
we can turn the other cheek. We can walk that second mile. We can give the shirt off our back. When we respond in this way, out there in the world, something is revealed to the world. Cruel people may do violence, but they do not have the power to take away the dignity and humanity of other people. Furthermore, if you respond to evil with good, you are revealed to not be a victim, but an authentic human being created in God's image and a blessing even to those who would do violence. This is hard. It is hard to claim our identity and walk in its light apart from community especially. This was perhaps the greatest lesson of the civil rights movement about which Brooks writes. It emerged from the roots of the black church. African Americans had to constantly reinforce the practice of nonviolence amid brutal situations. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Do not let any man drag you so low as to hate him. A. Philip Randolph, as early as 1948, told the Senate Armed Services Committee, Ours will be a movement of non-resistance. We would be willing to absorb the violence, absorb the terrorism, to face the music, and take whatever comes. Before we say these things are impossible, this turning the cheek, we must contend with the reality of that movement in our recent history. Before we say impossible, we must grapple with Charleston, South Carolina, and Mother Emanuel AME Church, where after nine of its members were killed in a Bible study by a lone gunman, the families and the church responded with forgiveness. Before we say impossible, we should take a good look at the Amish community that came together in Pennsylvania after a gunman killed 10 Amish little girls ages 6 to 13 in a one-room schoolhouse. That Amish community that immediately spoke words of forgiveness and raised money not just for the families of the victims, but also the family of the gunman who took his own life after taking theirs. At the funeral for the killer, the number, the number of Amish mourners outnumbered non-Amish mourners. Yes, before we say impossible, we must note these moments in time. But note also in all of these instances there was the presence of a community. The black church, the Amish church, where Sunday after Sunday, week after week, the people were told in water, in bread, and wine, in the word, you are the beloved of God. Now let us walk in the light of that identity. 
When I first interviewed with the pastor nominating committee to come to this church, I saw on the church's information form that uh, you desired worship to be dignified. I read that several times, and I remember cautiously pressing the committee on what exactly it was that you meant as a church when you said you wanted worship to be dignified. Do you remember two weeks ago when Randy Frame and Michael Snotty did the offertory, a majestic piece of music, and in the silence that followed the last note, a child sitting toward the front said, Yay! Do you remember that? And the congregation couldn't help it. Laughter turned to applause, and I thought for a moment there might be a standing ovation Something I've never gotten yet. <laughs> that was a special moment. And I must admit to you that when I saw the word dignified all those years ago, I was afraid it might mean this was a congregation in which that kind of thing couldn't happen. Or that Sunday when the organ kept playing after Michael stopped playing it, Remember that? And he had a special technique for trying to get that to stop. He just banged on the keyboard. And this cacophony of random notes flew overhead. And it worked the first time. And then later in the service, it happened again. And as he was beating the keyboard again, to no avail, I went over and gently suggested turning it off and going to the piano. And he said in response, it's okay. It would only take me a minute to, to go down there and, and unplug the pipe. So the congregation, you, were treated to the scene of Michael fully robed, crawling down into that pit underneath the organ. And I approached the pulpit, and you could hear that one note slowly going away like air out of a balloon. You remember that? Marsha, be ready. I worried on that day long ago when this church said worship should be dignified that an event like that would have me uh, in the crosshairs, would not be tolerated, would get me in trouble. But I pressed the committee and it became clear as I talked with them and it became abundantly clear as I began worshiping among you, that this church sought a worship experience that was true to its center, that maintained a certain core identity, that regardless of what was going on out there in the world, regardless of the times, we would return week after week to these formative spaces, font, table, pulpit, the word, centered in God's grace. Dignified meant that worship would be formative, that it would resist flashiness and entertainment and instead simply seek to nurture an encounter with the risen Christ. Dignity. Centered in your identity. Dignity. I'm grateful each week for this worship. 
with the kind of dignity that comes from the grace of the God who sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous alike. Today, church, Christ pronounces a blessing on us. You are the beloved children of God. You are called to be a blessing in the world. You can, by the grace of God, with the nurturing of this community, you can adopt a posture in the world, one that turns the other cheek, one that gives the shirt off your back, one that goes the second mile, one that loves enemies. Gandhi said, an eye for an eye and the whole world will be blind. The world, divided and at odds, enthralled to violence and vulgarity, seeking vengeance for every wrong, desperately, desperately needs to see an exhibition of the kingdom of heaven. We will never follow perfectly. We need each other for support and accountability. We need God's grace above all. But friends, it is not impossible. With God, all things are possible. May it be said about you and me, may it be said about this church that we've maintained our Christian dignity in these fraught times, that we shed the light of Christ in the darkness, that we brought hope that there is another way that leads to life. Let us receive the blessing of Christ let us have the courage to walk in its light together. Amen.